0: And so we we'll try to it gives us a little more time. Um, so I thought what we would do is maybe memorize, try to memorize a few scriptures as we go through the Gospel of John. There's some a lot of you know verses. We think of John three sixteen, and a lot of verses that have to do with sharing the gospel with people and and so forth. There are a lot of very important verses in John. So uh, we will try to. Uh, I'll try to encourage you <laughs> to memorize the verse, and we'll go over that the first thing we do. Now, this one is John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this is the same translation. This is the NIV, but this is the same translation you find in the King James and about every other translation. So you're probably familiar with this one. So if, you're, if, you, if you don't know this one, Think about it over the, this week. Try to say it. in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Pretty simple, isn't it? So try to get that in your mind, and I'll ask you about it next week. The first thing, and I'll call upon different people, and I want to, <laughs> to but, but there will be a quiz. So there are all these quizzes in my class. Now they're not. You don't. We don't grade them, but I'll put them up there, and I'll, we'll just. Open book, open book quiz. Yeah, it is open book quiz. <laughs> those are the hardest ones. Did you ever have one of those in school? Sometimes they can be pretty hard, um, especially if it's open notes quizzes where you didn't know uh, what uh, didn't have good notes. Let me see if this phone's going to stay on here. All right, so uh, that's our memory verse, and we'll be doing that uh, each week. Now, I say each week because... I'm not going to do that many verses. You know, John 1, we'll have John 3, John 5, and so forth as we get through. So it won't be that many because we'll just do some very key verses. Now, if you have your notes there, we'll start with an introduction tonight. And um, <clears throat> here is a, a slide um, showing, I'm going to look at some chron- chronology here, time events. So we just kind of get the time period that we'll be discussing. Now, we're discussing Jesus' ministry, as we'll see, which comes from about A.D. 27 to 30 in that range. Uh, I have Jesus' death over there in this chart. I, don't, I borrowed this chart. I, I don't know where I got this from, but I got it somewhere. But there is some debate about exactly when Jesus died, but one, one chronology says A.D. 30. I've always accepted that as about pretty accurate. So Jesus, uh, Herod the Great, becomes the king of uh, Judea and, uh, and Galilee, everything, the whole, what we call the ancient Israel, uh, in AD 37. So you remember at this time, the Romans had pretty much conquered the world. And they conquered uh, Israel in AD 64. Uh, Israel had, uh, had formed its own a nation again uh, after they threw off the Greeks and so forth in the first century, uh, second century BC uh, with the Maccabeans. But then the Romans conquered, and so uh, the Romans divided up the Roman Empire into various provinces, different kinds. We see Paul uh, in the province of Galatia or the province of Achaia and so forth. But sometimes they let, they let uh, rulers, local rulers, control the territory. They let them rule it. They were called client kingdoms. So Israel, ancient Israel, becomes a client kingdom under a a king, Herod the Great. Herod the Great professed to be a Jew. I mean, he, he was theoretically a Jew. He was really an Idumean. He was from just south of Israel. But he got control. He was friendly with the Romans. There's a long history there. And he becomes king in AD 37. He's the Herod mentioned in the Bible, you remember, who tries to kill the baby Jesus, you know, uh, killed the, the children in Bethlehem. And uh, he's noted for a number of things. He starts a temple build in uh, 80, uh, 18 through 20, rebuild. Now here's his kingdom here. Uh, it's all the green there. So it's Idumea down south, Judea, Samaria, Perea, Galilee. He controls all that. So the Romans let him control that entire territory. Now, other parts of that were controlled by Roman governors, that Decapolis is kind of a Gentile area and so forth. So he controls that entire area, which is pretty much what we think of as David and Solomon's empire, pretty much the same general geographical limits. He's controlling all that. Um, So... um, that's Herod the Great. He, uh, there's a temple there that was, you know, uh, when Ezra and uh, Zerubbabel uh, returned and uh, then Nehemiah returns. They build, rebuild the temple, you know, after the destruction of the temple. But Herod starts a tremendous rebuilding project of the temple and he really enlarges the size of what's called the temple mount. He makes it twice as big. He, he makes it very, very large. He starts that and he starts at about 18 or the year 18 or 20 and so forth. And it's, it goes on for a long time. Uh, many people say it was not even finished, you know, it wasn't finished in his lifetime. And it wasn't even finished in Jesus' lifetime, supposedly. It would, they just kept working on it, working on it. So Jesus was born uh, about uh, 5 or 6 BC. So he starts in 18 or 20 BC. You can see it before Christ. And then Jesus is born about 5 or 6 B.C. Uh, and so Jesus is born in the kingdom of Herod here. Um, this large area here. There is the, the temple that uh, a view of the temple, one view of the temple, the temple mount that Herod uh, enlarged and built. So we're talking about this area here. All this area is what herod uh, rebuilt this is the temple that jesus uh, was in jesus day so that's that's really that mount there that that mount is actually twice the size of the the temple that that was there before he really enlarged the place that royal stoa on the right side is where the eventually the sanhedrin met um so that, that's the, the temple area. A beautiful project. It's said to be very very, very beautiful temple area and temple mount that Herod built. So that was the temple. We'll see that's the temple that Jesus will be going into those, temp- those, those, uh, those areas around here. This is the... Uh, you know, I might be able to show that with my... I don't know if I can. Yeah, I can. Uh, can't, I should enlarge my cursor, but... This is, right here, is like the court of the Gentiles out here. Gentiles could be out here. And so Jesus has, has a lot of ministry in the court of the Gentiles. Over here is what's called Solomon's porch. They, You know, we see that, or Solomon's colonnade. So Jesus has a lot of ministry there in the temple. We'll be talking about that. Um, so... Um, uh, then the next thing on that slide is Judea becomes a Roman province. So when Herod died, he divided up his empire, his territory, among three of his sons. He had, he had a lot of children, but he gave it among three of his sons. And if you can see here, uh, this area here, this color is kind of grayish or whatever, whatever it is, blue gray. Perea, Galilee, that's Antipas. This area up here is another son, Herod Philip, Herod Antipas. And this green area here, which is where Jesus has a lot of his ministry, of course, Judea, Samaria, but not Gal- you know, also Galilee, uh, that's, that was ruled by his son Archelaus. But Archelaus was such a bad ruler that the emperor Augustus replaced him in 86. And that's what I was showing here. Uh, Judea becomes a Roman province in AD 6 here. And so when Jesus has his ministry, uh, there's actually a Roman governor over this. So uh, that, that, this green area here, Samaria, Idumea, and Judea, the Romans take this over directly after Archelaus, Herod's son, is removed, they take it over and they rule it directly through Roman governors. And that's why Jesus is before Pilate. Remember, he's before a Roman governor, Pilate, because the Romans have taken that back over and now they govern it as a province. Here's a timeline of of Jesus' uh, life. So born in 86... And various events, Jesus in the temple court at Passover when he's young, as a child, about 12 years old. And then Jesus' ministry falls in that latter three and a half years, maybe. Some debate about how long Jesus' ministry is, but many people think about three and a half years, especially from the Gospel of John. So that's what we'll be concerned about. Here's a timeline of Jesus' ministry. Uh, If we look at all the Gospels together, you know, public ministry of John the Baptist, then Jesus' baptism, then there's a transition to John, and then his ministry in Galilee, and then Perea, and then he comes to Jerusalem for the crucifixion, and so forth. Now this is how John covers it. John is is, uh, not like the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels, Synoptic is a word that means to kind of see together. So they're just viewing the same events in the same sort of order mostly. They, they follow each other very closely. John uh, doesn't. He has kind of a, he has a different emphasis. So you can see he spends most of his time in Jerusalem there, covering Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. So um, this is... Uh, Kind of the age of Jesus and the apostles here, um, and we'll take a look at that in just a moment. Let's take a look at our notes now for a second here, if I can keep this uh, phone on or not. Yeah, I can. Uh, let's look at the introduction. I want to look at just some introductory questions before we get into the text. If you have any questions, feel free to raise your hand or just shout out or something so we'll hear what your, your question. So who wrote the Gospel of John? You might say, well, that's not obvious. It was John. But actually, many books in the New Testament and many books in the Bible, it doesn't say John wrote this. So there's no, there's no author mentioned. And that's true. It doesn't tell us, the Gospel doesn't tell us who wrote it. But as I say, the unanimous testimony of the early church named the Apostle John as the author of the fourth Gospel. So... You know, from all the writings of the early church that we have, they all say John wrote it. No one questioned that. No one doubted that. Uh, everybody affirms all the copies that we have of John's gospel indicate John is the author. Uh, you know, they, they mention that just like we have in our Bibles. It'll, it'll sometimes say that. So there's really no doubt in the early church as to who the identity was. From the earliest days, they they believed it was the Apostle John, one of Jesus' apostles. Uh, I say, although the author is not named, there are some direct statements that give clues to his identity. If you just look inside the gospel, you can sign certain clues. uh, The author was an eyewitness. We know that because he says the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. So whoever the author was, he saw Jesus, he, he, he he knew Jesus, and so forth. So that limits it. You know, somewhat. B, the author was an eyewitness of the crucifixion. John 19.35, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows, what, he knows that he tells the truth and he testifies. So the author saw the crucifixion. That limits it somewhat, too, if we're just looking that way. The author, we know, was the disciple whom Jesus loved. In the the Gospel of John, there's these references to the disciple whom Jesus loved. So, for instance, John 21, 20, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Now, this is after the resurrection, remember. And Peter says, "What, what about this guy over here? And that's John. That's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. This is the disciple who testifies these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. So this disciple uh, whom Jesus loved is mentioned here. And I say, uh, this cannot be Peter as he's differentiated from the disciple whom Jesus loved. So, There's Peter and this disciple whom Jesus loved. So we know Peter is not the guy who, we know Peter is not the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm sure he loved him, but he's not the one who's described in the Gospel of John that way. Uh, Peter, James, and John were the closest disciples to Jesus. James was killed before the writing of the Gospels, thus leaving John as the most likely candidate. So as I said, John's never mentioned as the writer of the Gospel, but, you know, it's, that's, more, that's the most likely thing. And it's, it's likely that John, in, in modesty, didn't name himself here. He just calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved and doesn't name himself. Everyone in the early church, again, had no doubts about that. When was the gospel written? Uh, so here we have, like, the first century. Uh, Jesus' ministry, the death of Jesus, then Stephen, and then, of course, uh, Paul's ministry starts shortly you know, after the time of Stephen, uh, Nero in 64, you know, and so forth, he, and the death of Paul, destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and then the end of the first century. So what are we talking about? When did they write the gospel? Well, we don't know exactly when it was written. Uh, early Christians, writers say, John wrote his gospel after Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their gospels. And he shows knowledge of them. We'll talk about that. He seems to be acquainted with their writings. So that suggests later on after Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote. Now, early Christian writers say John lived until the reign of Emperor Trajan. That would be AD 98, right to the end of that graph there. So that's the latest possible date. The destruction of the temple is not mentioned. That was a traumatic event. That was in AD 70. John doesn't mention that at all. It seems like maybe some time has passed. I say, since it's generally thought that John wrote his gospel before his epistles and Revelation, a date around 85, as suggested. So, we often say John wrote his gospel, then he wrote the epistles, then he wrote the book of Revelation. That seems to be the order. So, probably 85, we don't know for sure, but somewhere around there. So, John is the last writer of the gospels and written very near the end and one of the last books written in the New Testament, obviously. Most everything is written before that. Um, Where did John write his gospel from? Well, traditions, all we know, says Ephesus. You can see Ephesus here, where Paul founded the church at Ephesus. I've got some other cities here. There's Jerusalem down there, Antioch. Remember, uh, they were called Christians first at Antioch, and Paul had his missionary journeys from Antioch. Philippi. Corinth. You can see where Ephesus is at. So uh, tradition says John spent his latter days at Ephesus, and uh, and, uh, he wrote his gospel there. All the early Christian writers say that. Now, we don't know for sure, but there's no reason to particularly doubt that. Who was John writing to? Was he writing to a particular group of people Well, since he published his gospel at Ephesus, this this leads to the view that he was probably writing mainly to Gentiles. Whereas Matthew, Matthew has a very strong Jewish influence. He was certainly thinking about Jews when he wrote that. Uh, John seems to be writing more to people like us, Gentiles. According to his own statement, John wrote with an evangelistic purpose, expecting to reach unbelieving Christians via Christian readers. So he's writing this to give it to Christians. I mean, Christians are going to be receiving this, but the idea is use this gospel to reach uh, unbelievers, reach Gentiles. And that's what we do today. You know, people, uh, when you're trying to witness to somebody or evangelize somebody, one of the things that uh, we're often told to do is, well, if they're willing to read the Bible, have them read the Gospel of John. If you want them to read something the Bible... That's the thing to read. <laughs> that way they can read about Jesus, His ministry, about being born again. You know. So if you, want, if you want unbelievers, your friends, to read something in the Bible, have them read the Gospel of John. And that's what John's purpose is. He says in John 20, "...Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah." the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Let me just mention about that word Messiah there, and I'm going to talk about it again a number of times. But the, you know, the word we usually read there says that Jesus is the Christ. Now the NIV is translated that Messiah here. Now remember uh, the Greek word Christ, Christos, means anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one and that's the that's the greek equivalent of the hebrew messiah which is messiah so the word christ means messiah jesus the messiah and so a lot of times here now in the niv they're just going to translate that messiah so you'll get the flavor you know when we when we tell when people hear the, the name Jesus Christ, they think, well, Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name, you know, something like that. And they don't really write Jesus the Messiah. That's, that's the connection there. And so they're bringing that out. So it was, it was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John selected his material here in the gospel and structured his gospel for that purpose, this evangelistic purpose. Finally, E here, what are some characteristics of the the, uh, gospel? This is something from the ESV study Bible here. Um, I say here, uh, style and vocabulary, they're rather simple, but as simple words are quite profound. And what that means is the Greek of John is pretty simple to read. So when we're teaching students Greek, uh, and we teach them, the, we go through the first year, and we kind of teach them all the grammar and stuff, some vocabulary. We want them to start reading the Bible. And the book we usually start on is one of John's books. <laughs> usually First John, but it could be the Gospel of John. So in the New Testament, was written in, in the Greek language, as you know. And some of the Greek is harder than other Greek. Some is more difficult. Some is easier, simpler Simpler vocabulary and simpler grammar, easier to translate. John's simple, the simplest. Something like Luke, Acts, Hebrews. Those are more difficult to translate. Uh, more difficult Greek language. And so, John's are very simple. But you know, I've, over the years, I've found out it's some of the most difficult stuff to to grasp and understand. You know. Uh, it, it's really it has some pro- very profound ideas that are not not easy. You think they would be. You just read First John, and you think, well, this is pretty simple. But John has some very profound ideas. He emphasizes key words and themes such as love, life, truth, know, believe, witness, and abide. And as I say, so you see some of those there uh, style and vocabulary there. He uh, he has a lot of words like light and physical birth, wind, you know, spiritual truths. That ties in with this next one, (laughs) symbolism. Uh, Much of John's material is designed to have a symbolic value. So you've got a lot of those words like, you know, born again, uh, the wind, the water, John 7, the, the bread, you know, the door, the shepherd, the vine. So a lot of his words and concepts have sort of symbolic value that we have to figure out what he's, what he's talking about. I mentioned the Good Shepherd discourse, the vine, the branches, and so forth like that. Uh, the seven miracles around which John constructed his gospel are called signs. Uh, these are the ones that are usually called the seven signs in the gospel that John constructs his gospel around. Uh, what about eschatology? Well, Dr. Snowberger is teaching eschatology over there <laughs> in the classroom one, which is last things, future things, what's going to happen in the future. Well, in comparison to the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's not very much emphasis on future things in connection with the second coming. John emphasizes what some people have called realized eschatology. How about that first $100 word? Hundred dollars words. Realize eschatology. What in the world does that mean? Well, eschatology has to do with the future things, you know, what will happen to us in the future. And what this is saying is John seems to suggest that we are already realizing some of the things that will be fully given to us in the future. Uh, many believers, I say, are, are experiencing eschatological blessings now. Here's like John 3:18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him stands condemned already because they have not believed the name of God's one and only Son. Well, technically, no one has been condemned yet. (laughs) The great white throne judgment is coming, and then they'll be pronounced judgment upon people, and they'll be cast into the lake of fire. They'll, They'll... but in a sense, if you haven't trusted Christ, you're already condemned. You're, 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 it's, like you've, it's like the sentence has already been passed, isn't it? It's already been realized. That's, what, that's, what they're, that's, that's the kind of language John uses. John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed from death to life. Well, you know, let's think about that eternal life. We commonly associate that. Yeah, I believe I've got eternal life. Well, you have it and you don't have it. <laughs> you don't have it fully, you know. I wish I had it right now because my back is hurting me. And my, I went to the doctor today and uh, and he did all these x-rays. He said, he showed me, you got arthritis, 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 arthritis. Every, every place on that spine, he found this arthritis, you know. And he just said, you know, you're, you know, this is just old age, unfortunately. <laughs> what do you do with that? You know, Well, if I had eternal life, I wouldn't be having this problem right now. Now, I do have it. It's guaranteed. But I'm not really experiencing it right now. But John says, yeah. It's like when you believe in Jesus, it's guaranteed. And you're sort of experiencing it right now. That's what's sometimes called realized eschatology. He has an emphasis on Christ. He has an emphasis on the deity of Christ more than the other Gospels. You know, beginning with John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, as we just said, that's going to be our memory verse. The Word was God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. That's Jesus. He has made Him known. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. You know, other, other, gosp- other writers of the New Testament refer to Jesus as God also. But John does a lot here, so he's very interested in telling us that Jesus is God. He's uh, a member of the Triune God. Number five, there's more teaching about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John than other Gospels that we see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke quite a bit when we get to the Upper Room Discourse. Alright, let's look at... Um, an analysis here, and uh, the first thing I want to look at is the introduction. It's usually called the prologue. Uh, a prologue is, as is, uh, is I say here, let me read this, when, with the words, in the beginning was the word which reminds us of the opening of Genesis, John begins his gospel. The prologue is like a hallway. You know, a prologue is like an introduction designed to draw the reader into the house which at the same time, it introduces some of the major themes that will be presented in the gospel. So, John introduces some of the major themes in John 1, 1 through 18. Uh, He introduces Christ, whom he calls the Word, and he says He is deity. We saw that in verse 1. He's going to tell us He's intimately involved in creation. The Word was intimately involved in creation. He's going he's to say he entered into human life so that he could provide eternal life for all who receive him. And that's what the gospel's all about. The rest of the gospel is kind of unfolding John 1, 1 through 18. Um, I say here we should begin by seeking to understand what John uh, meant here when he uses the term uh, Word calls Jesus the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's that's a little unusual. I mean, maybe we're so used to it now, right? <laughs> uh, but if you think about it, and you read that, in the beginning was the Word. <laughs> where, where did that Word come from? Why does John use that particular term? It's not a common title. It's the Greek word logos. You've probably heard preachers talk about logos. Uh, the logos, that's the Greek term for word. Uh, the other uses are confined to John's writing. So John's the only person who calls Jesus the word. First John 1 John 1.1, Revelation 19. Now, it's not a difficult to understand. It's used over 300 times. But it's how John uses it in the prologue. Logos is kind of a what we call a neuter or an impersonal idea. We think a word. We don't think word is a person. It's more neuter or, or, or uh, impersonal. But in John 1, 1 through 18, the word is a person. It's, the word is personified. It becomes a person. The logos is a person. This is clear, I say, from verse 3, where the, the logos creates. Through him, that is the logos, all things were made and only a person can create. So John is using the term logos, as we know, to describe a person, which maybe we're so used to, but it's a little unusual. Now, why didn't John use other terms? In the beginning was Jesus. Or in the beginning was the Christ. Because those two terms, Jesus and Christ, are connected with Jesus' humanity. And he doesn't become a human until later the Word became flesh. The Word becomes a human being, verse 14. So, he's talking about uh, the second person of the Godhead before he becomes a human being. So, he couldn't use, in the beginning was Jesus, because Jesus wasn't in the beginning. (laughs) He didn't come into being Jesus, the Savior, didn't, the human, human part of Jesus, his humanity didn't exist until he was conceived in the womb of Mary. So he couldn't use that. He couldn't use Christ. Those are a mes- messianic term. I uh, say here the Christ, uh, the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem, and to be the son of David. John seven forty two. Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? So John needed a term, a name that could refer can refer to only the divine aspect of the Son of God. Remember, the Son of God is both human and divine. He has a human nature and a divine nature, right? So John wants to talk about the divine aspect, and he needs a term to talk about just the divine aspect. He can't use Jesus. He can't use Christ. Those are associated with his humanity. So he has a term, logos, or word, to, just, to talk about that. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh. The Word became a human being. I say here the word logos had important significance for Jews and Greeks. Now, I don't know exactly why John chose the term word. Some people spent a lot of time thinking about that because if you lived in that time, if you lived in the first century, and somebody used the word logos, that would mean something to people people in Greek culture and in Jewish culture, because in Greek culture, the Greeks talked a lot about the Lagos. <laughs> when the Greeks looked at the universe, they looked around, they said, you know, this universe has some order to it. It has some arrangement to it. The sun rises and sets and the planets go around, you know, what we know about. It seems, what, what, how do you account for that order? Well, we say God. The Greeks said the Lagos. They said there's something, the Lagos, they weren't thinking of a personal God, but they said the Lagos, uh, I'll keep my phone on here, they said the Lagos uh, is what gives the uh, universe order. That's why it's not just flying apart, uh, and so Greek philosophers talked a lot about that. So, when John uses that term, you know, if a Gentile reads that, he's going to, hey, what's going on here? The logos. I've heard, you know, I've heard of that or something like that. I say being a Jew, however, the main reason John chose the term word is because how it's used probably in the Old Testament. That would be his natural starting point. The first words of the prologue clearly draw us back to Genesis. We read in the beginning. We think about Genesis. In the beginning, God created, don't we? It draws us right back. Um, in the Old Testament, there was already a tendency to personify the Word of the Lord. That is, there was a tendency to talk about the Word of the Lord and treat the Word of the Lord like a person. So He created by His Word, Psalm 33:6. By the Word of the Lord were the heavens made. So the Word of the Lord made the heavens. And of course, now we see it in verse 3, the Word creates. Uh, the Word heals, Psalm 107 Then they cried to the Lord, and he saved them. He sent forth his word and healed them. So there's a tendency to think of the word as a person associated with God, at least that's there. And beyond that, all people from all cultures, no matter where we're from, we understand that one uses one's words to express oneself. We communicate to others. We express who we are. We identify who we are. We tell who we are. By our words. And so uh, the word is the expression of all that God is. He is God. Uh, Jesus himself said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You've seen God if you've seen me. So the the reason uh, John uses the term word word is because he needed to have a term to refer to the second person of the Trinity, before he became a human being, now we refer to this. We refer him to him now as Jesus or Jesus Christ or the Son of God. But what, how are you going to refer to him uh, before he became a human being? When you had Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, well, you could use the term Son, and Paul does that. But John chooses to use the term Word. So let's look at that as we start. In verses one and two, uh, John is saying, "The Word is eternal with God." And that's in the first part of verse, uh, a, first part of verse one. So as I said before, these words, in the beginning, remind us of Genesis, don't they? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John uses other terms like Genesis does. Words like light and life and darkness in verse 5. So throughout this prologue, he uses the same kind of terminology that Genesis uses. We're thinking, he wants us to think back to Genesis. So I say the beginning of which John speaks is the same as Moses made the starting point of his narrative in Genesis 1.1. That is the beginning of the existence of created things, the creation of the universe. So Moses starts his account from the creation and moves forward in time. In the beginning, God created, and then time begins. We start start the creation of the universe. John sort of starts from the same point and goes backwards. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was already in the beginning. Before there was anything created, before there was anything but God... (laughs) just God, the Word was there. So in the beginning, at the time of creation, the Word was already existing. Uh, There was something before the beginning. There was something before creation. In fact, the Word was responsible for creation, as we see in verse 3. Through Him all things were made, John tells us. So I said this is showing us the eternality of the Word with God. The Word is eternal with God. And I say the eternality of the Word is shown by the verb was in the first phrase. At the time of creation, the Word was already existing. The verb was in this clause, in the beginning was the Word, and the other two, all three, that is, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All three of those (laughs) "wases" are in a Greek tense that doesn't express a completed action, but a continuous state. So, in the beginning was the Word. That is, the Word was continually. The beginning was continually. In the beginning, the Word was eternal. It's a continuous state. So, what is John is saying is, at the beginning, the Word was already existing. He, he, he was existing. He was there and existing. Of course, we know that's true because he's the second person of the Trinity. And in the beginning, there was just God. God created. Before that, there was just God. Nothing else. So, in the beginning was the Word shows that the Word was eternal with God. Number two, the Word is personally distinct from God. So now he's going to distinguish between the Word and God the Father. And the Word was with God. Now I say here the Greek word for God in this second clause, God, the Word was with God, has the article the with it. It actually, you know, technically if you just translated it literally, and the Word was with the God. Now that doesn't make good sense in in English. We don't like, we wouldn't want to say... And the word was with the God, that we don't use the word, we use the word the differently in in English. So we don't translate it, but it's there. And as I say here, when it's used like that, when you're talking about different persons of the Trinity, when it says the God, you're talking about the Father. That's the way writers distinguish, because all of them are God. (laughs) The Son's God, the Holy Spirit's God, they're all God. But when they want to talk about The God, as distinguished from the Holy Spirit and the Son, they'll use the article. For instance, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, there's the second person of the Trinity, and the love of God, but actually there's an article there. We just don't translate it. And the love of the God. (laughs) It's just not translated in English because it doesn't make good sense but that's again showing us that the God is the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So Paul has a triune, a Trinitarian uh, benediction here at the end of 2 Corinthians. The Son, the Father, the God, and the fellowship of the Spirit. I say the the preposition that's translated with, that is with God, suggests the ideas of accompaniment and relationship. The word was with the Father, in the sense of being in His presence and with the the Father in the sense of being in active communion with Him. The Word and the Father are two distinct persons who are in perfect communion with one another. That's why I said this phrase is showing the Word is personally distinct from God because you've got the Word and the Word was with God. So the Word was there and God was there. God the Father was there. The Word was with the Father is what he's saying. So remember, the distinction between the Father and the Son is not one of essence or being. It's one of personality. So remember, the the Orthodox doctrine is three persons, one God. Three persons in the Godhead. They're all God, they're all divine, but there's three persons, one essence. So the distinction in the Godhead is not one of essence or being, it's the same being not separate beings i know that it's it, I, i'm not saying i understand all that <laughs> i'm just saying that's what the scripture teaches and that's what the church has held for 2000 years so we're pretty safe ground there so one essence one god uh but three persons now that three persons was not really uh not really explained to us until we get to the New Testament. There are hints of it, you know, in the Old Testament that there may be something going on in the Godhead, but it's not clearly laid out that there are three persons until we get to the New Testament, and it's clearly revealed the Trinitarian nature of God. And the last part of of this verse will make that clear. Notice number three here. Uh, The Word is identical in essence with God and the Word was God. In the beginning, was, I mean, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, so distinct from God, and the Word was God. I'm saying that phrase indicates that the Word, though a different person, we see that in the second clause, the Word was with God, is the same essence. Let's look at that. This part of the verse has received a lot of attention, primarily because the Jehovah's Witnesses say that the last part of John 1.1 1, 1 should be translated the word was a god. So, if you look at their translation, the New World Translation of this, they have their own translation. Jehovah's Witnesses do. In fact, it's interesting. Pansy got a letter today, a handwritten letter. <clears throat> you know, we looked at the thing, and it's on uh, regular ruled paper like you use in school. You know, notebook paper. You know, with the blue lines. You know, for each line. And we look at that thing and we think, and I'm thinking first, you know, this is one of these fonts that mimics handwriting. You know, that's what I think. This has got to be a, because I'm looking at the envelope outside and it looks like this is a handwritten thing, you know, and, but op- we opened it up and I look, I say, that's got to be a font. But no, I looked at the letters and they're different. And this is a handwritten note from a Jehovah's Witness woman trying to convert Pansy. And I had a hard time, but I pulled her back. I pulled her back. <laughs> I pulled her back. No, they really, that's really amazing, a handwritten note. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, remember, they deny the deity, of well, they deny that Jesus is equal to God. They say he's a created being, as we'll see. And so they translate this, the word was a God. Notice small g, small g, and a God. So with this translation, a God, they want to support their doctrine that the Son of God is not equal to God the Father. He's not equal. He's a lesser God who was created by the Father. So they believe that Jesus Christ, the Son, was a created being by the Father, a lesser being. Now, Let's talk about some problems with that translation. What's wrong with that translation? The Word was a God. Well, you can think of one right now. If you look at any English Bible, um, you can't find that translation except the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. And I guess the Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, that's just, they're just part of the conspiracy. <laughs> All these translations are part of the big conspiracy to keep you from knowing the truth that Jesus was a created being. I say A... First, if Jehovah's, if Jehovah's Witnesses' translation, a God was correct, it would mean that the Father and Jesus are different gods, right? Yes, it would. This would be polytheism, the belief in many gods. Now, of course, I think Jehovah's Witness would say, no, we don't believe in polytheism, but they do. Yes? Well,
1: I was going to say, their translation, that's not really a translation, um, says in Exodus that God said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but then they differentiate in saying that Jesus was a God. Mm -hmm. They say Jesus was called the Word, but
0: he was a God, yeah. Yeah, it's really contradictory, isn't it? Uh, Now, in Greek mythology, we know that uh, Zeus could create other gods. You know, that was polytheism. and so, But it's inconceivable that John, being a first century Jew, known for their monotheism, you know, the Jews were just known for, we believe in one God, that John would say, hey, there's more than one God. <laughs> you know, can you believe? You know, first of all, that's, that's just very hard to believe that John would, would say that. Uh, and as I said, the truth is that we believe that There is one divine essence and three persons in that essence. B, second, we know that the Jehovah's Witnesses' translation is incorrect because they do not consistently follow their own translation principle. I don't know if you can follow this or not, but they say that if the word God does not have the article the before it, if it doesn't say the God, then it must be translated a God. Now, remember in that second clause, the word was with the God. We had the word the there. So that was the Father. Here it doesn't. It just says, the, the, and the word was God. There's no article. Now I'll explain why that is true in just a moment. But that, that's the principle they're operating. They're saying, okay, we know that in the second clause, it says, and the word was with the God, that's the Father. And since it doesn't have the here, then this is not the same as God. This is some sort of lesser God. It's a God. Now, they don't really understand what's going on with the Greek language here, but my point here is to say they don't follow their own principle. So their principle is, if it doesn't have the word the in front of God, like it doesn't have here, and the word was God, there's no the in front of it, right? Right? The word was God. There's no thee there. They say, okay, got to translate a God because there's no the. Got to translate it a God. But they don't do it. There was a man who was sent as a representative. This is their translation, 1-6. There was a man who was sent as a representative of God, and the word God doesn't have the word the in front of it. You see my point? I get my point? So if they followed their principle that they use in verse 1, they'd have to translate a God. Yes. Well, thus the, the anomaly, the thing
1: that happens with virtually every religion that, that does not honor Christ, Jesus Christ as who he is, they have to rely on men. And so what they do, as with Jehovah's Witnesses, as with the Catholic Church, as with um, so many... Of these false religions, they, they purposefully direct people to listen to the leaders, their mm. leaders, their holy fathers, their, their yeah. higher-ups, instead of the actual scriptures, where God said very clearly through Paul that the Bereans were doing it better because they were searching the scriptures daily to see if the things that men told them were true these religions teach men people to listen to
0: the men That's true but Jehovah's Witness would come back on you on that because they want to come to you they want to they want to come to your they want to come to your, to come to your house and take the scriptures and try to prove their doctrine is right so they're not quite as you know they're they're operating a slight they're trying to say the scriptures really teach this so they're misinterpreting but my point here is they're not following their own translation because if they say in verse 1 The word God doesn't have an article, it should be translated God. Well, what about verse 6? What about verse 12? However, to all who did receive him, he gave authority to become God's children, the children of God. Well, there's no article there. It should be children of a God. You see my point? I mean, So, you can't really say because it doesn't have the article that is to be translated a God. They don't do it themselves. (laughs) They just want to do it here in one verse. I just want to follow this principle right here because they want to deny uh, the deity of Jesus. They want to say, I say deity, they want to say he's not divine in the sense of the Father. Uh, He's not Jehovah. Uh, Jehovah is the Father. He's he's Jehovah, and he's not Jehovah. Uh, Third, if the Jehovah's Witness had put a definite article before the word God, if John had put a definite article, I'm sorry, he would be saying that the Word and the Father are identical in all respects. That is, they are the same person. So if he said, and the Word was the God, he would be saying the Word was the Father. See my point? Because I said the God refers to the Father. Well, the Word is not the Father. As you know, our chart is saying, uh, the Word is not the Father. Um, Maybe you've seen this diagram. So the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father, but the Son is God. You know, all persons are God, but they're not each other. They're not the same. So if he would have put that, he would be saying they're identical in all respects. And that would contradict 1B where he said they're different. And the Word was with God. So the Word is distinct from God. How is He distinct? Not in essence, but in personality. Um, now, there are people who teach that the Father and the Son are the same person. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't teach that. They teach that the Son is a different person created by the Father. But if, 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 if you accepted the Jehovah's Witness argument here, uh, or, or I should say, if John had put the word the in front of it like they want us to, like they say, well, you've got to have the... If you said the word, and the word was with Thee, God, you'd be saying the word is the Father, and they're the same person. And there are people who say that. Remember, anti-trinitarians. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses are anti-trinitarians, <laughs> but they're not the same as most anti-trinitarians. Uh, we have people, for instance, called Oneness Pentecostals. Ever heard of Oneness? Pente- uh, Jake, you know, T.J. T.D. What is it name? T.D. Jakes, yeah. He's a member of a oneness Pentecostal, most people don't know that, a oneness Pentecostal denomination. And the oneness Pentecostals, they're they calling they call themselves oneness Pentecostals <laughs> because they, don't, they deny the Trinity. They deny their, the idea of the Trinity. And they say, and this, this heresy started in the early church. It was sometimes called patropassionism patra the father passion the father suffers so really there's just one person he just the father just comes down and he becomes the son and the son becomes the holy spirit so they're really all the same person there's one there's not different persons in the trinity it just it's kind of stupid because that means jesus is praying to himself when he prays to the father he's really praying to himself but That was a a teaching and a heresy in the early church. It's lasted all through church history. It's called Sabellianism, has different names. And it's, as I say, the oneness Pentecostal. So you can find uh, Christian denominations. They're not really Christian. They're heretical, but who deny the Trinitarian view of God. Um, I say also here that... uh, I guess I should put that back up. D, the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, deliberately misinterpret the grammar of this verse in order to advance their heretical doctrine. No Greek scholar agrees with their translation. No other English translation agrees with their translation. Now, there are plenty plenty of people in what we call liberal Christianity. You know what I'm talking about? There There are people who call themselves Christians in mainline denominations, in even in Roman Catholics, but Episcopal, Methodists, others, certain Presbyterians and others, even Baptists, who we think of as liberal Christians. They deny the authority of Scriptures. They call themselves Christians, but they deny the inspiration of Scripture. They deny the virgin birth. They deny the bodily resurrection. You can, there's plenty of seminaries you can go to and be taught all that stuff in the United States. But those liberals, they deny the deity of Jesus. They believe He's just a human being. But they don't, they, they don't translate John 1-1 that way. <laughs> they, they say John believed that Jesus was divine, that he was God. He was just wrong. John was just wrong. So that's, what, that's what liberal Christians... They, don't, they know what the Greek grammar teaches here. They know, what, they know it teaches exactly this translation and the word was God, but they just say John was wrong. They don't try to do like Jehovah's Witness and distort the the translation here at all. Uh, So that translation the word was a god is wrong and I'm sure you don't care about all the grammatical aspects here but I can just say (laughs) without a doubt that you know Greek grammar is very clear here that it's impossible to translate this the word was a god that's why no translation does even translators who are very liberal in their theology and so forth. what this is emphasizing is saying the Word was God, that is, He was of the same essence. It's, it's really talking about the quality. The Word was as to His quality or His nature, God. That's what the grammar is teaching us here. The Word was as to His nature or quality or His essence, He was God. It's hard to bring that out. I mean, the Word was God, pretty good. <laughs> Some have said, well, we should say the Word was deity. I mean, that's pretty good. The Word was deity is what it's saying. The Word was deity. Uh, The Net Bible, which is a a Bible online, says the Word was fully God. That's what John is trying to say. The Word was with God. He's a different person from God, but he's of the same nature or essence. And the summary here... uh, 1, 2. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 2 summarizes the previous three statements in verse 1. John wants to make sure that what he has just said is understood. So now John works backward in effect. The Word who is God is the very one of whom I have said also that was in the beginning and that he was with God. So that's our memory verse for next week. In the beginning was the Word and the word was with god and the word was god now there is no there is no stronger way in the greek language that i'm aware of to express the deity of the son of god than that verse you know it's a shame that jehovah's witnesses are twisting it <laughs> saying it doesn't it teaches just the opposite But the truth is, there's no stronger way in the Greek language that I know of if you wanted to say the Word, the Son, was God. The same essence of this is the way you do it. (laughs) This is how you would do it. So this is a very, very important verse. But I see it's 8.15. So we will not try to go past this too much. We will stop here for tonight. And we will... Pick this up next week, Lord willing, at uh, verse three. And I gotta stop talking so much and just getting through the material here, Donna. Thanks for coming tonight. And uh, so you don't have to be here as early next week. But if you come in late, there's a real penalty. I'm sorry <laughs> to say that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot.